starting from verse 17. Now you, if you call yourselves a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Darrell. Good morning. For those who haven't met me, my name is Darren. I'm a member here at Trinity Church. In 1984, the well-known apologist and author Ravi Zacharias founded Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. The reason for including his name in the name of the organisation, so the story goes, isn't uh, due to some egotistical desire for self-promotion, but rather because uh, a major donator who gave funds to kick off the ministry uh, made it a condition of that gift that his name be included in in the name of the organisation because he said the name of the the organisation, the ministry, would rise and fall on the integrity of its leader. And for many years, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has been extremely successful Uh, in doing the work of God's kingdom through evangelism, through books and through uh, speaking engagements and so on. In May last year, Ravi Zacharias died after a brief battle with cancer. But in September, just four months later, uh, accusations started to surface from three women uh, who worked for a couple of day spas that Ravi co-owned, alleging the sexual harassment of multiple massage therapists over a period of years. In February this year, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries released the results of an investigation they did into those um, accusations and the report confirmed that the allegations were true. The report outlines behaviour from the organisation's founder that is abusive and predatory, using the gospel and Christian language to manipulate emotionally and financially vulnerable people. 
the detail of Ravi's behaviour towards some of these women is shocking. And at least one woman said that Ravi had warned her that if she ever spoke out against him, she would be responsible for millions of souls lost when his reputation was damaged. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has expressed its deep sorrow and grief and has repented of any wrongdoing uh, in unknowingly covering up uh, the actions. But the repercussions of this have been massive. The ministry provided by the organisation has in many ways been irreparably damaged by the lack of integrity of its leader. Today, as we look at this passage in Romans, we'll be asking the question, what does it mean to be a person who truly follows Christ? What difference should that make to our lives? As long as we preach the gospel, does it really matter if we practice what we preach? I think it would be a good idea if we pray before we begin. Father God, your word is a two-edged sword, so full of encouragement and life, yet at the same time, able to cut through our hypocrisy and pride. As we gather around your word this morning, let us do so humbly, acknowledging our weaknesses and guilt, but with a certainty that we can rest on the grace purchased at such great cost by the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is our fourth week in Romans, and so far, uh, Paul has announced his big theme, the one message he wants to get across. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel, this good news of Christ, is God's power for salvation because it shows us that the righteousness of God is through faith. For all who believe. Now, many of us have heard this from the time we were children, even if we didn't go to church. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his, own, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel, that whoever believes in Christ will be saved. But in Rome at this time, that idea was having a bit of a tough time. To work out why this was the case, we need to understand a bit of their history. And for those who haven't been here over the last four weeks, um, I just want to give a quick recap of where where we've come from. In AD 49, a couple of decades after Christ's death and resurrection, the Emperor Claudius, there he is, he's got a sporting a a nice divided mullet, Um, he expelled all the Jews out of Rome because of what is described as disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Now, we assume that Christus is actually Christus, or Christ. Um, And so all the Jews were expelled. Five years later, after Claudius' death in AD 54, the Jews are allowed to return. Five years is a pretty long time. I mean, just look at last year. Five years ago, this church had just planted out at Golden Grove. Since then, we've grown again, planted another church, and already we're actually pretty full again. So five years is a long time. And so the Jews have re-entered Rome and the Christians who have returned are reintegrating back into the churches. But those churches for the last five years have been made up exclusively of Gentiles. Remember, a Gentile is anyone who isn't a Jew. 
Before the Jews had been expelled, they'd held the balance of power. And you can read in the book of Acts how Jewish Christians had tried to apply pressure to Gentiles uh, to get them to eat the right food, to obey the right laws, and to be circumcised. For example, in Acts 15, we read, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised, according to the, the, the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And while the Jerusalem Council, which you can read about in the rest of Acts 15, ruled against that, it's harder to change people's hearts. As the Jews returned into Rome after five years away, the Gentiles now held the positions of power previously held by the Jews. And so a culture shift has occurred within the churches. And it's into this situation that Paul's writing this letter. In our passage today... He's speaking specifically to the Jews and his message comes in three main points. First, he gives them a warning against overconfidence. Now, the Jews had tradition on their side when it came to their faith. After all, they were called Jews, which comes from a Hebrew word meaning praise to Jehovah. They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They were God's chosen people. And it was to the Jews, or the Israelites, that God's law, the Torah, had been given. And they prided themselves on knowing God's revealed will. These were the three pillars of their faith. Monotheism, they worshipped one God. Election, they were chosen, they were God's favourites. And Torah, they had God's law, they could make superior moral judgments. Compared to the theological ignorance of the Gentiles, the Jews looked pretty good. And so we look at what what Paul says. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the, the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, the Jews look pretty good if you look at that. If that was a true reflection of the Jews, they looked they looked good. And that's what they looked like to themselves. But Paul's about to turn the table on them. Let me read on. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The answer, of course, is that Paul is implying, yes, yes, you do do these things. The problem was that the pride of the Jews had blinded them to their own condition and their pride and presumption led to disunity. They saw themselves as guides, as teachers, but then they looked condescendingly down on the Gentiles, those unwashed. Tacitus, a Roman historian and politician from Paul's time, said regarding the Jews... Among themselves, their honesty is inflexible, their compassion quick to move, but to all other persons, they show the hatred of antagonism. Apparently, some Jews even took an oath to never show kindness to a Gentile. Now, we don't know whether this oath was taken by Christian Jews, would hope not, but the fact is that the privilege and position they felt they had with God, which should have produced saints, instead produced arrogant loveless hypocrites. Is it really any wonder that Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, 
God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, I just want to hit pause for a bit. While Paul is having a go at the Jews here, it's not some anti-Semitic rambling. Paul isn't anti-Jewish. And his criticism here of the Jews isn't based on the fact that they were Jews. What he's doing is taking aim at those who are bringing the name of Christ into disrepute through their arrogance and overconfidence in their own perceived goodness. I wonder where this might play out for us. I think any time there's abuse in church that's covered up by the church, when that abuse becomes known more widely, it brings the name of God into disrepute. The world is very good at recognising hypocrisy, especially in Christians. I really hope that Paul can never say of us that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. But Paul's not finished. The second part of his message to the Jews is a warning against false security. Paul's focus in this section is on circumcision. Now, when God chose Abraham of all the nations of the world to begin his covenant people, the family which would become the Israelites and eventually the Jews, he said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And little further on, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision was a big deal for the Jews. It was a sign of their election by God, even to the point, as we saw earlier, of saying, unless you were circumcised, you cannot be saved. And yet, as we read the Old Testament, we know that even though all Israelite men were circumcised from birth, they were rotters. You see, while circumcision was a sign of being a part of the community of Israel and it was a physical reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, it didn't mean that their hearts were automatically pure and it didn't somehow magically protect them uh, from their inclination to reject God and engage in idolatry. And the same can be said of us, for example, about baptism. Baptism, like circumcision for the Israelites, is a rite of passage for entry into the community of believers. Baptism doesn't make someone a Christian, but it's a response taken by someone, or in the case of infant baptism, taken on behalf of someone, as a symbol that they publicly choose to be identified as a Christian. Now, I grew up in the Lutheran church, and for many years my dad was an elder in the church. And I remember him telling me a story of being called to the local hospital where a lady from our church had just given birth to a child who sadly wouldn't live out the rest of the day. He went to the ladies' room with our pastor, and they prepared to baptise the child. You see, and I don't think this is official Lutheran position, But this lady had the understanding that baptism made you a Christian. And if you were baptized, you automatically went to heaven. If you weren't baptized, you went to hell. And the Lutheran prayer book has an order of emergency baptism for just this situation. 
Now, the reason I remember this story is that when the pastor turned to the nurse and asked for a bowl of warm water, the mother almost jumped out of her bed and said, Pastor, you can't possibly use hospital water to baptize my child. You need to get it from the church. Apparently, she thought the church had one of these. (laughs) But my point is, while baptism is an important statement of our desire to become a part of the community of faith, and to be honest, in that situation, it may have been the exact appropriate response for the pastor to baptize the child. Baptism in itself doesn't make you a Christian. Circumcision didn't make the Jews in Rome Christian. Salvation comes by faith. Whoever believes in Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. Because that's what faith is. In the simplest terms, faith is believing loyalty. It's that believing loyalty that keeps us part of the community of faith. Not our baptism, not our confirmation, not even our attendance at church. The rest are just signs, they're external indicators of our internal condition. So let me ask a question to those who call yourself Christians. Do you call yourself a Christian because you attend church? Or do you attend church because you're a Christian? Do you call yourself a Christian because you do good deeds and help those less fortunate than yourself? Or do those good deeds flow out of your faith in Christ? Do we wear the badge of evangelicalism because it gives us a greater standing before God? Does being a member of the Trinity Network give us greater standing before God? Or even a church such as this, Trinity Church Mudbring? Our security in Christ doesn't flow out of who we are or what we've done, but out of who Christ is and what he's done. Because this is Paul's final point. He talks about having assurance in a right heart. He tells them that for the Jews, their circumcision doesn't need to be meaningless. Look at verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Equally, in the next verse, he draws in the Gentiles. So then, if those who are not circumcised, the Gentiles, keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Now, I'm hearing you ask something. I'm sure it's on everyone's lips. Hang on a minute. Those two verses don't mention faith. They talk about the law's requirements. And you'd be right. And for those who were here last week, listened to Coop's sermon, he had the same sort of question. I've had an extra week to think about it. Almost got there. I think if we look at James, the book of James, it tells us a little bit about this. James 2 verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. What James is saying is that actually you can't show your faith without deeds. The deeds are the indicators of our faith. And if we truly believe and have committed our lives to Christ, our deeds will flow out of that. So how does this fit together? Do we need to keep all the laws that are listed in the book of Deuteronomy? When the Pharisees came to Jesus to ask him which commandment was the greatest, how did he answer them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, 
with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Similarly, we read in the book of Micah, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? There's the Lord's requirements. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Faith and works go together, but the horse has to come before the cart. It's our faith, our believing loyalty, that puts us right with God, and our works flow out of that. For the Jews, it was their faith in Christ that validated their circumcision, not their circumcision that put them right with God. For us, if we're baptized, it's our faith that validates our baptism. For believers here who are not yet baptized, your faith makes you baptized inwardly, if I can paraphrase Paul in that way. The assurance of our righteousness before God cannot be based on who we are or on what we've done. That's overconfidence, false security. It's based in Christ and our ongoing faithfulness to him. But equally, our faith in Christ needs to affect the way we live. I'm going to put verses 28 and 29 up here, but I'm going to rephrase it slightly as I read it. A person is not a Christian who is one only outwardly, nor is Christianity merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Christian who is one inwardly by the Spirit. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Earlier I spoke about Ravi Zacharias, a man who was able to share the gospel with perhaps millions of people around the world, who was, in the words of Paul in today's reading, a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, someone who had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And yet someone who, in his own life, engaged in behavior that was quite simply abhorrent. Part of me wants to run into the temple and cry aloud in prayer, thank God I am not like that man. But I can't. Because I am. Ravi's area of sin and weakness are different to my areas of sin and weakness. But to a holy God, my pride, my greed, my selfishness, my self-righteousness are no less abhorrent and no less worthy of judgment. I can't even turn to that old saying there, but for the grace of God go I, because the fact is I do go there. Where is Ravi Zacharias now? Can we say that his good works outweighed his bad, that his his public ministry outweighed his his private behaviour? Or should we condemn him to hell? The answer, of course, is that thankfully such decisions are in the hands of God. But what we can say is that wherever he is now, it's not due to any trade-off between his ministry and his failings. No matter what he did in this life, no matter what you've done in this life, Christ's death on the cross was and is sufficient. Ephesians tells us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. We're saved through faith, that's it. 
If you're someone here this morning who doesn't have that faith in Christ, I urge you to talk with someone before you leave today. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to one of the ministers. There'll be a prayer corner down here. Someone would love to have a chat to you. There is nothing that you have done that Christ can't forgive because it really is all about what he's done. All you need is faith, believing, loyalty. Let me pray. Father God, we confess to you that there are many times that we base our confidence of our salvation on our own perceived godliness, that we let our pride tell us that we're doing okay spiritually. But Lord, the only confidence we can have for our salvation is in Jesus' death and resurrection. As we approach Easter, let us remember the great cost that was paid on the cross and help us never take that for granted, but in humility to put ourselves aside and be faithful to you only. Amen.